Welcome to the Not For Profit Podcast. My name is Matt Williams, your host. Today we are talking to Brett McLeod, currently the Managing Director at IC Church, former Managing Director at Focus on the Family and also Radio 96.5 FM here in Brisbane. The Not For Profit Podcast is brought to you by Platinum Audits for all your auditing needs. If you need any audits done or you need any information, please contact Platinum Audits. Welcome, Brett. Thank you very much, Matt. It's great to be here. Thanks for the opportunity. Ah, no worries. Thank you for coming on. I really appreciate it. Just if you would just give us a, I just mentioned a couple of NFPs that uh, you've been involved with. Just give us a little bit of history about your um, history on NFPs and, and what you got involved and, and where you've been and what you've been doing. Yeah, sure. So my, um, I guess my working life uh, started off in, in uh, somewhat of an entrepreneurial sense where I, uh, I was at one point running four businesses concurrently. Uh, around the one central kind of administration, but I had these four very different niche businesses running, uh, one in portable staging, one in office equipment, one in uh, child mining and shopping centres, and a recording studio, of all things. And uh, so all those kind of kind of uh, came in line. It was a bit like growing a veggie garden where one would, be the, one would be the stake in the ground for the next one until that developed, and then it would be the stake in the ground for the next one and just kept going from there. Um, so I always had this kind of entrepreneurial sense of, of, of business and love for business um, and at the same time I had a I had a real passion for the not-for-profit sector uh, where I felt that there was um, just great reward in being involved in something that made such a difference to people's lives and so I always had a, a draw towards that so I guess while I was in my business roles uh, I sat on the Board. My first exposure to a not-for-profit was as a board director for Focus on the Family for five years, uh, wow. sitting on the board of directors, um, which was based in Melbourne. And um, and then the the founding member or founding director of uh, Focus on the Family relocated to the US, Focus, of, Focus on the Family in the United States, and uh, invited me to consider prayerfully uh, coming on board as the CEO for Focus on the Family in Australia and uh, transitioning from a board role to a CEO role. And uh, so that's really, I guess, my leap across the channel of, uh, of um, learning from being in my own business to a not, large not-for-profit with international stakeholders uh, and uh, volunteers and external funding and all sort of thing uh, compared to running a business was really where we kind of more dipped our toe in the water. Wow, that's it. What got you involved on the board in Focus on the Family First? I know you said you like to be involved and, and see the, how it affects people. What got you in 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 the trenches on the board? On the board, well, uh, I um, I had met Glenn Williams, who founded Focus on the Family Australia, um, at some point, and uh, and I was aware of their their programs, and uh, I listened on the radio, and I, I became my boys were as, as they were growing up. There was a program called, um, developed by Focus on the Family here in Australia, called How to Drug Proof Your Kids, which is a pretty um, impacting statement. How to drug proof your kids? Is it possible to drug proof your kids? Uh, and uh, it was all about being very deliberate and intentional as a parent 
in preparing your kids for the world out there and uh, the, the, I guess the, the, the traps and hurdles that they can come across and just trying to condition them or, or position them for success in life and, and not to um, submit to these temptations, to be aware of them. And so I, my first um, exposure, I guess, to focus was as a facilitator for the How to Drug Proof Your Kids program. Initially, for purely selfish motives, because I wanted to parent my kids well and make sure they follow you know, yep. a good path. Uh, but that kind of really got me, I guess, exposed to the other products that Focus had and, and, and the staff. And uh, from there, I was invited to come onto the board uh, and ultimately then become the CEO. Wow, that, that's a big step from, yes. from board to facilitated a board to CEO. Yes. What, what was your biggest challenge? Like, what's the biggest hurdle coming on from you as a board member? You see bits and pieces, you see sort of from the outskirts what's happening. Yes. Jumping into CEO role, you're seeing day, day to day, every day, everything happening. Yeah. What was yeah. the biggest hurdle from board to CEO? Yeah, I, I think I, the way I would describe it is being a director on the board, it's a bit like um, a helicopter view from the air. Uh, where you can see a little bit about what's going on, but not the detail. You can see that it's still there, it's functioning. <laughs> and you kind of land the chopper every two months to check in and then you take off again. But it's very different going from that sort of mode as a, as a board, governor, board director uh, to actually putting the fatigues on and getting in the trenches with the troops on the ground 24-7. And it's a bit like that. So suddenly you, you, you're in, the, in amongst the detail, you're now accountable to the board that you once sat on. And, uh, and I found that that was, um, um, you know, that was quite a challenge, I think. Um, but at the same time, I think it was a great advantage to, to, to know what a board expects of their CEO and then operating as the CEO, I already had a, a very intimate view of uh, or knowledge of what the actual board required. And so it made that transition a lot easier. But I guess the biggest challenge for me was really moving from a commercial mindset, running my own business to um, uh, being in a not-for-profit, being in the not-for-profit world, which operates very differently. Uh, it's not about selling widgets for a profit. Um, it's about you know, creating vision and, and having a compelling enough story and outcomes that affect people's lives that people want to invest in and uh, create that donor base. So um, a very, very different sort of model, but, but very rewarding at the same time. Oh, awesome. On that note, like going from commercial to not-for-profit, this is something that I find out there that people aren't in the not-for-profit sector. They they seem it's we can't make a profit. It's a not-profit, can't make a profit. That's that's a myth because can you explain that to the listeners just on that? Because coming from that commercial to not-for-profit, it's funding is very different. Like you said, yes. you're selling a widget for a profit. Yes. Making you know, NFPs, getting funding is a different story. Can you just go through that NFP you can make a profit, but, you know, why Why it seems there's a myth out there about that. Yeah, yeah. I think it's all in the terminology. A not-for-profit is about um, there's a difference between having profit and having surplus. So the way an NFP, a not-for-profit organisation, um, should function is that it's okay to work towards a surplus, but it's not really called a profit, but the surplus actually funds on, on funds the ongoing operation, the sustainability of the organisation. And so I think having a, a commercial mindset helped to, um, to, to, I guess, um, challenge that thinking that, you know, is it, is it okay to make a profit? Uh, from a business, you have to make a profit. 
But in the not-for-profit world, it's, you, you really still have to make a surplus to, to, to maintain that ongoing growth, that ongoing sustainability. And um, so I guess uh, the, the timing of when I took on the role of CEO for Focus on the Family was interesting because none of us really knew when the second shoe would, second boot would drop with the GFC. We, we all knew that there was pressure on the economy uh, and I shook hands with the, the directors of C of, uh, of Focus on the Family and said, yep, I'll take the role. And uh, some months, only months after I took the role, the GFC was in action and, and away we went. So uh, there, was a, there was a retraction and um, of funding and uh, it was, we, had, we had a recurrent annual funding from the government federal government family services for redeveloping our drug proof your kids program of in the value of $230,000 per year. Now that had been running for four or five years and it seemed like it was never going to stop. Well, it stopped within <laughs> the 12 months that I started. And uh, so that was something I couldn't prepare for or plan for or um, anticipate, but it happened. And um, so the biggest challenge for me, I guess, was contemplating a significant amount of money coming from the government every year that, that I knew in 12 months would turn off. And not only that, the GFC hit, there was a global financial crisis, so there was another $300,000 of funding coming from the US that, um, that also was, was retracted and drawn back or reduced over time as well. So I had my two biggest challenges, Matt, was to um, navigate through through two significant restructures of the organisation, and I discovered something. Um, I, I discovered something almost by mistake in the, in relation to financial management of a not-for-profit organisation, where there has to be this marriage between pragmatism and faith. And I'll explain that in a little bit as well for you. Yeah, absolutely. That's that's a perfect statement. So, so. Losing that funding, and I know all NFPs go through that. Some have trouble actually finding funding, but a lot go through that, get the funding, disappears, and yes. you have that pragmatism and faith. How how do you get through that? Like how, you lost, you know, you're talking six hundred thousand odd dollars, gone almost overnight. You had a little bit of time, a little bit of leeway to plan for more. How did you go about that? Yeah, it was um, it, it was a. It was good for my prayer life. It was great for, um, uh, you know, in terms of running a not-for-profit to think, well, okay, uh, how, do we, how do we work through this? As you say, a significant amount of recurrent funding that, um, that we were relying on. What was interesting was that the mum and dad donors of, of the organisation, and I found this within 96.5 as well, um, the mum and dad donors of, of an organisation that are sold, that are, that are rusted on to the vision and the outcomes of the organisation irrespective of what's happening in the economy, they, they tend to hold their donations coming forward. And, and that's just, the, I guess, the, the belief in the organisation. And, um, and so this, there's a large base of, I guess, smaller donors that make up a considerable amount of income for the organisation that, that, that relationally continue going. But it's these large um, donations that you can be, become somewhat reliant upon uh, and when they go, you've, you've then got to think, well, what am I going to do? And it was interesting that I, I was reading a, a Christian um, management magazine that had two articles on um, man financial management within a not-for-profit organisation. One was totally pro pragmatic. The other one was totally faith-based. And they were both right next to each other. Wow. And it spoke to me about, a, about um, the place that, 
for an organisation, not-for-profit organisation that's Christian-based, has to have this faith element and has to really default to that faith element. But there also is a time to be pragmatic because I was faced with a situation where if I did, if I did nothing for 12 months, um, doesn't matter how much faith you've got, if, if, but for a miracle of financial resource from somewhere else, pragmatism would, would, would hit very hard and very fast. And uh, so I, I maintained a faith position, but I also recognised that there was this tension between full faith and full pragmatism. If it, was, if it was all pragmatism, I might as well be ABC Corporation down the road and have no Christian basis. Uh, if it was all faith and no pragmatism, I could have kept going on faith until the creditors knocked on the door and said, you guys are shutting down and we're selling everything off and you're gone. So uh, I, I was facing this situation where I had to face it with faith but be pragmatic at the same time and make the, the, the hard decisions in a timely manner so that the organisation could keep going. So we went through two restructures. The first one where we pared back and um, pulled back a lot of recurrent costs around programs. And the, and the second um, restructure that we did was I had to make a, a, a number of other people redundant and the last person that I made redundant was myself as the CEO. And, uh, and um, so it was not about protecting my job. It was about what was going to allow the organisation to keep going. And for the last four or five, five years since I left there, or more now, last eight years since I left there, it's continued to run strongly. And it's because we, I guess, were faith-filled but pragmatic enough to make the right decisions at the right time to allow a remnant to continue forward. Oh, that's awesome. It's good to hear that they have gone on strong and, and continue yes. to, to build and, and go from there. And I know that I the programs they do offer and I listen to them as well. They're fantastic. Yeah. So yeah. I like it. For other organizations like large organizations like Focus on the Family, what can you what advice would you give them to if they're going through that yeah. funding where they need more funding or they don't if they've lost the funding? What would be a, one piece of advice you'd give them, you know, around their pragmatic and faith as well? But one piece of advice to give them to, to say, hey, look, you're hanging there, you're doing all right, or is there something they can do to you know, expedite that funding or try to find, find extra funding? Yeah, look, it, it, it's, a, it's a pretty broad question. I guess it really depends on um, the nature of the organisation and where the potential funding opportunities can come from. And I, and I guess it's about being um, creative enough and innovative enough in your approach to explore perhaps some um, territories and avenues and, and ponds that you haven't fished in, uh, <laughs> and to put it crudely. But yep. where are the opportunities where perhaps we haven't um, explored the full potential or even uh, tested the water? And um, what can we do? And it's really, I guess, a matter of um, you know, rolling the sleeves up and being totally focused on maintaining the mission at whatever level you can uh, but, and, and there's, there's certain mission-critical aspects of an organisation that have to continue irrespective. And uh, whether they're scaled back or not, they have to continue because that's what's producing some of the outcomes. And perhaps you're not, because of the, of the funding squeeze, you're not achieving the level of outcomes that you're hoping to, but you're still achieving outcomes until things turn around. And that's the, that's the key. I think, I think the main thing I would say is in a, in a financial environment or squeeze like that, um, Maintain focus on what you're there for. And, uh, and then if you maintain focus on that, the resource will come. There, there will be provision for the vision. And uh, that, that, that comes as you maintain a, a, like a, a laser focus on what, you, what you're about and what you're trying to achieve. 
Yeah, I love that the provision for the vision, and yes. that that works across any not not for profit and for profit as well. Yes. Yeah, absolutely. Just going back to your restructure, when you restructured, you had to get rid of a, a lot of, of team members and, and positions, mm. including your own. What were the what was one or two things you implemented during that period to allow that to happen? Like, what was the, was there you had, you know, you obviously would have had a set goal to do it. But what was what was the two things you one or two things you implemented in that period to make that happen? Yeah, well, what, what we did was um, we didn't just immediately sit down and look at the people that were actually in the organisation at the time. Rather, we sat down and said, well, with my like, key exec team and a board member, we said, what are the non-negotiable elements of this organisation that have to continue? And so we were pretty brutal in terms of auditing um, what we wanted to see continue moving forward. Uh, and then we, once we had that, once we had clarity around that, we then thought, okay, what are the roles and functions that we need to fulfil that. Now, it was, a, it was a somewhat scaled down version, obviously, of what we were, were carrying before. Um, but within that, we said, okay, these are the functions and roles that are required to maintain what we've agreed we need to continue. And then we started to look at, okay, what are the skill sets we need to uh, fulfil those roles and functions? And that's where we started to move the pieces on the board. And we moved people into those roles. And some of the, some of the, the functions and roles were... Um, a combination of what existed before in separated form with, with, with blended roles, um, we'd, we'd remove roles altogether, and we then just place people against that we had in the organisation against those roles. And in some cases, we couldn't find someone on the that existed on, on the, in the original mix that fulfilled a new role. Um, and so, even though the organisation was small, we end up bringing another person in um, to, to fulfil that role, and then um, restructured in that in that context. So we had to then have interviews with people and say, well, we've created this role. Are you happy with that? Um, if they were, would they continue? Um, if, and, and then the others, we had to say, oh, I'm sorry, we haven't got a role for you. And that was the hard facts of what we had to do. But um, but avoiding that would, would have meant that the whole organisation would have just um, disintegrated. Mm. Yeah, and sometimes even in NFPs and even in property organisations, you have to scale back to go forward. Yes. it you, Every business... Well, nearly every business goes through that period of scale back of some yes. some form. Yes. At least I've seen in my couple of years around. So yeah. Yes. In if you could go back and if you if you had to go back and and do it again, would you do anything differently? Would you would you do something differently? Like hindsight's a wonderful thing, but if if, yes. if our listeners can learn from your what you've done and and focus on the family you're still around, so obviously it was successful what you yes. what you did. But if you could do it differently, would you? Look, uh, and again, that's a really. Interesting question because when you come into an organisation, when I did, it was really um, I carried the experience I had up to that point and then went for it. Um, there's nothing that I would really, as I look back, there's nothing that I, I would that I can point to that that clearly says you know you you could have gone about that differently. Um, I, I would think that now this many years forward, and then with, with extra experience, obviously I would go back and 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 add that level of um, experience to the mix and, and probably tackle some, some things somewhat differently. Um, but in the main, I guess, in the big scheme of things, um, I'm, I'm really comfortable, confident and happy with as difficult as it was at times at how we, how we handled it. I, I think in answering your question, um, uh, what I have recognised is that the governance of an organisation is critical. 
and um, and I've learned a lot in respect to uh, the governance uh, of an organisation and how it's um, how it's managed in that sense. Um, and I've discovered a a very solid governance model that was developed by a guy called John Carver, the Carver governance model. And I've I've operated from high from I've operated as a CEO working for a board that, that, that is very high functioning and very effective. Um, and I have, I must say, operated for a board that has been um, quite um, dysfunctional in a sense and very, um, very operationally minded rather than governance minded. The Carver model, governance model, really demands of a board to have... To, to invest all their time, effort and focus on what outcomes they want to see achieved. Just the outcomes. What are the outcomes that you want to see achieved and what are the KPIs around that? And then hand that over to the executive team and the CEO and say, this is what we're, 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 we're wanting. These are the aspirations and the missions of the organ- and the outcomes and objectives of the organisation. You build the strategy to make that happen. And then leaving it to the people who are involved 24-7 to live or die by what, how they achieve, you know, how they achieve that. And, and that, that model really provides, a, a, it frees up the board to focus just on the outcomes and objectives that they're chasing, but it also is very freeing and liberating for the operations team to say, you know, what, there are no restrictions on how we can do this provided we don't bring reputational damage to the organisation, that we're ethical and that we're, that we're responsible, but we've got total licence on how we achieve this um, and use our... Material, uh, our maturity, experience, and the trust we have from the board to deliver, and 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 so you just go for it. Um, when you move away from that type of model, where you've got directors perhaps digging into the details, starting to question strategy rather than keep their eye on the outcome. At the end of the day, um, it doesn't matter how sometimes how you get there, as long as you get there. And so as soon as you start, people start, you know, directors start digging into the detail, it, it's actually a great distraction and, and, and you start to second guess, am I really doing the right thing? And perhaps if I don't follow that line of, of, um, of reasoning from the director, uh, if it doesn't prove successful, I'm going to put myself out on a, in a vulnerable position. So it just really complicates things. And so I've worked for both high-functioning Carver model and, and a board that's been very, um, I guess, um, distracting in, in terms of the operation of the organisation. And have you found that the high functioning board and the higher levels are much better to deal with, and it gives you that freedom within that space to, like you said, create yes. maturity, create where you want? Is it does it does that model though bring some problems with the relationship between the board and the exec team and CEO? The carbon model, yeah, I don't see it. Um, uh, I think what the, the the success of it really um, is on the basis of having great clarity around what we're seeking to achieve as a board and um, and the accountability of the CEO to deliver on that. So really it's very it's very easy to measure. Uh, has has have these objectives been been achieved or realized? If not, why not? And are they realistic? Um, is there a delay because of some other external circumstances? That's the information that comes through. And and then it's really up to the CEO to provide these directors that parachute in every two months provide them with enough information ongoing um, to feel comfortable and confident that we're actually heading towards achieving those goals. So um, provided the communication uh, reporting system is robust enough 
then the, the model works very, very well. If the only reason it would fall down is if the, if they're not receiving accurate, timely information from the CEO, um, because he's because he's hiding behind some of the detail. No, fair enough, mate. We're just about out of time. Anything you want to add? That if people want to reach out to you, is there LinkedIn, Twitter? Where they can get in contact with you at all. Yeah, LinkedIn. Um, look under Brett McLeod. There's a reporter in for Channel Nine. That's not me, <laughs> um, but uh, LinkedIn, uh, Brett McLeod. You, you'll find me in there, and uh, yeah, happy to, to to connect with anyone and answer any further questions or be of any support. Beautiful. I thank you very much for your time today, mate, and uh, we'll chat again soon. Brilliant. Thanks, Matt. Cheers. Thank you.